please open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. If you are using the Pew Bible, uh, there is Bibles along the aisles there. And uh, if you need a Bible, we encourage you to take one. If you don't have one, to begin to refer to that. Genesis chapter 21 is found in those Pew Bibles on page 16. Page 16 of the Pew Bibles. And if you are new to church or it's been a long time since you've looked in the Bible, uh, it may help you to know the large. Uh, numbers are the chapter divisions, and the small numbers are the verse divisions. And we're going to work our way, Lord willing, through the entirety of this passage this morning. But if I can just draw your attention to that song we just sang, Rock of Ages has. It is an old, old hymn, but it has some beautiful, beautiful lines. That second verse is especially meaningful, especially rich. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing we do can fulfill the law of God. Could my zeal, could our passion, could our effort, could our enthusiasm, no respite, no rest, no. Could my tears forever flow? Could we be forever sorrowful, forever mourn our sin? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. That is the message that we believe as Christians, that we come to the Lord not through anything we bring in our hands or may do. We come relying alone on the mercy of God. So would you join with me before we begin studying the word of God together, asking for the Lord's mercy on our time together. Father in heaven, this is your word. We ask that today you would open our hearts that we may receive it and that it may be a light to our path. Oh God, work in us today according to your rich mercy in Christ Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. In 1923, an earthquake struck Japan. Tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of lives were lost. Earthquake was a nine on the Richter scale. Incredibly severe. The damage done, the loss of life, the not just the loss of life from the immediate earthquake and the aftershocks, but then also the suffering, the result of tsunamis and waves that afflicted the shores. To their aid came many Western countries helping giving supplies, offering uh, assistance in many different ways. And as a response to the generosity of the Western nations, the Japanese emperor, in a speech delivered, declared, we shall never forget. But that was in December, that was in 1923, September 1st of 1923. By December 7th, 1941, They had forgotten when they launched a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The promise we shall never forget apparently meant we won't forget for a while. Some promises you can't take for for good. What we want to see in this chapter 
is a number of things, but first and foremost, we want to see that God, the eternal, the everlasting God, is always good to his word. He is always and always makes good on his promises. And we see that all throughout the chapter in a variety of ways. We see that in the first opening verses, Genesis, 12, Genesis 21, verses 1 and and two, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abram a son in his old age, at the same time of which God had spoken to him. Twenty-five years earlier, God had made the promise that he would give Abraham a son, that he would make Abraham a great nation and that he would give Abraham a land. And up to this point, 25 years later, 25 exhausting years later, Abraham Abraham hasn't seen one iota of those promises come true. Certainly he lives in the land of Canaan, the land that was promised to him, but he doesn't own a square inch of it. And he has been childless. Certainly he, he and Sarah had worked out and schemed a way for him to have a child through her handmaiden, trying to help God out. God's not going to be able to provide me an heir. We're way past the, the age of childbearing. Let's fix things ourselves. But God had said it will be through Sarah. And now here we have, after long last, at the ripe old age of a hundred, Abraham has a son born to him, and his wife, who is only a few years behind at the age of 90, is the one who gives it to him. It is incredible on every human scale. It was incredible even at this time. And we know uh, from biblical testimony that people lived longer than what seemed impossible, humanly speaking, is never outside the ability or the goodness or the faithfulness of God. God had promised a son. And here we are told, it is clear, the Lord visited Sarah. There's no doubt about what's happening, is there? This isn't some miraculous, or this isn't some accidental circumstance. This is, the Lord visited Sarah. In fact, multiple times in these first few verses, Abraham sees that. Moses writes that out. The Lord visited Sarah as he, that is the Lord, had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. God fulfills his promise when he said he would fulfill it. Because a year prior to this, God had told, visited with Abraham and Sarah and told them, a year from now you will have a son. And God fulfills his promise exactly when he said he would do it. God does what he says. It is the Lord who fulfills his promise and he does exactly what he has said. We see that again, as he had said, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. God keeps his promise of an heir. I don't know about you, but if you have known someone who has longed to have a child and has not seen that come to fruition, you know how painful it is. How exhausting, how rich with anxiety 
it can be on that couple. Years ago, my wife and I became friends with a couple. They were about eight to ten years older than we are. They had uh, been out serving and they had come. He had come, he had come back to go to graduate school so he could get further training because he wanted to be a pastor. And we became, along with a number of others, we became good friends with them. And we found out, even though Melissa and I had only been married for a couple of years, a year or two, they had been married for a while. And they were one of those unusual couples that when they got married, they wanted to have children immediately. They didn't want one or two or three kids. They wanted, they wanted an even dozen. They were okay with more than 12, but they wanted at least 12 kids. But they had been married for about 10 years by the time we got to know them. And they had yet to have a child. They had looked into it, they had gone to doctors, they had sought for help, and there were possibilities and steps that they could possibly take in the future, but the cost of everything was just far too much, and they were reconciled to the fact that there was nothing medically that they could afford to do for them to have a child. But what we could do was pray. And so week after week, we would get together, and we would talk, and we would pray together, and every week... He would say, let's pray, and could you also pray that we would have a child? And so the guys, we would pray, and if I could be at all honest with you, you do this for a couple of years, and there's that part in the back of your mind where you're om- I'm almost ashamed to say, I, I was, I'm, I'll pray for it, brother. But there's that part where I'm thinking, maybe we can just give it up, that it's not the Lord's will. Not long after Melissa and I discovered that she was pregnant with Isaiah, they discovered that they were pregnant with their firstborn son, with their firstborn child, who was a girl. And they ended up having, in the time that it took us to have four, they have had seven. And they thought, that's good. The idea of 12 and the reality of 12 were two different things, apparently. Children are a gift children are a gift. And God had promised it to Abraham and Sarah. And it had seemed way past the realm of human possibility. And it was past the realm of human possibility. But it is not past the realm of God's faithfulness and power. And Abraham and Sarah began to experience that now. Not only with a, a people, God blesses his, and fulfills his promise of a son, God begins to fulfill his promise for them to have a place. Up till now, Abraham hasn't owned anything in the land of Canaan. He is a renter, not a landowner. He moved around with his herds and with his family and with his servants. He, he, they, they moved more as a nomadic people more than they were a settled people. But look with me at the end of chapter 21. What we find here is that the Lord begins to secure and have a secure a place for Abraham and his family. Verse 22. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army. So remember last week we saw Abimelech. He is the king of this area, the king of the city of Gerar, a major a prominent city in this Canaanite region, in the land of Canaan. And he brings with him Phicol to a meeting with, with Abraham. 
And they speak to Abraham saying, God is with you in all that you do. They can see by this time, now that God has provided an heir, they see God's hand upon him. And they say, now therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring, or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. So last week we saw Abraham lied to Abimelech to save his own skin. Abimelech discovers it. Abimelech responds well to it because God has warned him to. And so Abimelech comes to him now. He says, look, I want you to deal faithfully with me the same way I did with you. I want you to deal faithfully with me. What he is seeing is that God's blessing is now on Abraham. And if God is increasing and blessing Abraham, he realizes that if, as Abraham and his descendants grow stronger, that could be a danger to him and his people. So he secures a peace treaty with, with Abraham and his people. For, that is meant to be for all generations. Verse 24, Abraham said, I will swear. But before he does all this, we see in verse 25 that there is something that, bother, that is bothering Abraham. An issue has arisen. Then Abimelech rebuked Abimelech because, and Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor, did I ha- nor have I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. And Abimelech set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. All right, so what is happening is this. A- Abraham, before he agrees to this covenant, this agreement with Abimelech, he wants to bring up an issue that is a problem for him. He has dug a well. It has been seized by him, by the, by the military or servants of, uh, of Abimelech's people. So he brings that up. Hey, look, this is what your people have done. And Abimelech claims ignorance. Hey, look, I don't know anything about it. This is the first I've heard about it. You've never told this to me before. If you would have told me, I certainly wouldn't have allowed it to happen. I certainly wouldn't have done this. And we're not sure whether he's telling the truth or not. It's It's pointless. Abraham takes him at his word and he agrees to this covenant and he gives him sheep and he gives him oxen and they make a covenant. And the words there to to make a covenant really can be and ought to be translated to, to cut a covenant. The very same thing we saw in Genesis 15 where Abraham is instructed to take these animals and if you're a bit squeamish, I'm sorry, but he's instructed to take some animals cut them in half, put them half on one side, half on the other, and they, they form a, a bloody walkway down the middle. And to walk down is to say to the other party, if I break this treaty, this covenant, you have permission to do to me what we did to these animals. It is a, a visible reminder of the warning of, the break, uh, of what it would mean to break that covenant. And, and it seems that they did that. They, they take these animals that Abraham gives and all of them, or some of them at least, are used to cut this covenant. And then as a separate entity altogether, Abraham gives him seven lambs, seven female lambs, baby lambs. And there we see in verse 29, Abimelech asked 
Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ulams which you have set by themselves? So he's wondering the same thing we're wondering. What, what are these for? And Abraham said, verse 30, You will take these seven ulams from my hand, that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore he called that place Beersheba, because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. What we have is Abraham is getting public recognition that he now has dug and now owns this well, the, the, the rights to this source of water. And you can imagine in a dry climate, water rights are massively important, especially when you're dealing with an agricultural society, being able to have access for your herds, for your flocks, for all that you have to have water is incredibly important. And Abraham isn't purchasing these rights to merely rent. Now he is purchasing public recognition that he has dug this well and he owns it. What you have at the end of this, cha- at the beginning of this chapter, before, before this chapter begins, Abraham doesn't have a son and he doesn't own anything. Not one of God's promises to him has come to fruition in in truth yet. They are still all future tense. But by the end of this chapter, Abraham is beginning to realize these promises in truth. He now has a son. And he now has a toehold in the land. There is a part that belongs to him. This place of Beersheba now belongs to him. What we see over and over and over again in this chapter, what it is shouting to us, what it wants us to see, is that God will not allow one of his good promises to fail to us. There is nothing that God has declared that he will allow to fall short. The Apostle Paul will point this out again and again, but this passage is screaming for us to see That God's promises will not fail. But there is more to it than that. In this chapter we see that God also will not let his purposes and plans for his people fail as well. In the middle section you have this, this account of Hagar and Abraham and Sarah all over again. We haven't really heard of Hagar since chapter 16. You will remember there that... Abraham and Sarah, as I alluded to earlier, they couldn't have a son. They were trying, couldn't have a child. And so Hagar was the handmaid to uh, Sarah. And so she gives uh, Hagar to Abraham to be his wife so that through Hagar they could have a son. And, and this is, I can't think of a better word than icky for us. This is icky. This is a dysfunctional family for certain. And yet this was normal in the ancient world. This was normal, even though it was wrong according to God's commands and God's standards. But he works this out, that he and Sarah work out the scheme by which they'll have a son through Hagar. And here we find all of a sudden, years later, it, 
it becomes an issue. Look with me at verse 8. So the child, this is Isaac, the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. I I want you to see, okay, many of you have probably seen others, whether online or through the news, uh, people having gender reveal parties. Some of you are old enough, you you, you see this, you're thinking they're having a party just to reveal whether it's a boy or a girl. That, That is a meaningless party, right? You need to wait a while. Well, apparently meaningless parties were always a thing. Here, uh, Isaac gets weaned, and he, Abraham, throws a big party. They didn't have gender reveal parties. They had weaning parties. And here, everyone comes, big celebration, everyone's excited, and um, and I, I think all of us can understand why. This is, his son is maturing, his son is growing older. When our last child got out of diapers, Melissa and I had our own little party. We changed the last diaper, never again. Let's get some ice cream, let's, let's just celebrate this moment. It was a beautiful day. And they're excited. No longer is Isaac nursing, he is maturing, he is getting older. But something happens on this day that causes some consternation in the family. Verse 9, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. So here she sees Ishmael, Abraham's son through Hagar. And we are told he is scoffing. That is, he is, he is scoffing, he is laughing at Isaac. And we know that what's happening is more than just this, a, a play between two children. So Isaac, by this time, by the time he's weaned, he's two, three years old. We, we know that uh, Ishmael is most likely around the age of 17. So this is not innocent play between two equal parties. Here you have an, an older teenager with a young toddler and what he's doing to this toddler is enough that Sarah, the mother, is greatly alarmed about it. Paul, the apostle in Galatians 4, he'll refer to this as, as Ishmael persecuting Isaac. So whatever is happening is, is significant. It is serious. And so Sarah goes to Abraham in verse 10. Therefore she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be an heir, shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. Whatever the situation, whatever exactly was happening, it was significant enough to cause Sarah to see the potential for future danger for the, on the part of Isaac. And so she goes to her husband, demands that he get rid of Hagar and Ishmael, that he kick them out, that he cast them out, send them away. And Abraham, we see, loves Ishmael. It is his son. He has watched him grow. He has helped him. He has taught him things. And to throw him out is displeasing to him. But 
God comes to Abraham that night and he says in verse 12, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. The Lord encourages, he assures Abraham of this. That in casting out, he must cast him out because the first thing he is doing is he is protecting the promised heir. That the, the, the one, the son of promise, the one through whom the covenant of God will continue on is not Ishmael, it is Isaac. But more than that, God wants Abraham to know that he will fulfill the promise that he made to Ishmael. That because Ishmael is the son of Abraham to whom God made special promises that he will cause not just Abraham, not just Ishmael to live, but that he himself will cause him to flourish. That, that Ishmael will be the father of many nations. And God, make, God fulfills this Beautifully, He fulfills this graciously. And he does this deliberately. You see, again and again, twice in those series of verses, God declaring what he will do. First to Abraham, where he says in verse 12 and 13, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman. So we see him talking to Abraham there, but he does this again in verse 14 going to verse onward. So Abraham rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, that is Hagar's shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. Then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of of about a bowshot, for she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Arise, lift up the boy and hold him with your hand. For I will make him a great nation. Here we see this truth that no matter how difficult the circumstances, the will of God cannot and will not be thwarted. Abraham is loath to send Ishmael away, worrying of what may come of him. And God reminds him of what he will do for Ishmael. And again, Hagar in the desert, in the wilderness area, afraid of what will become of her and her son. And God reminds her of the promise that he made to her back in chapter 16 of what he would do, will do for Ishmael. God will not allow his purposes and plans to fail. But he fulfills every single one of them. And what we see from this is drawn out how we must respond to the fulfillment of God and his promises in verses 3 and 4. 
That first, because God is good to his word, we must allow it to fuel our obedience. We must allow the fact that because God is always faithful, we too ought to be obedient to him. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. He is doing exactly what God told him to do. Verse 4, then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Each time, time, in in each action, Abraham is doing for Isaac exactly what God had told him to. Abraham names his son Isaac as God commanded and he gives him the sign of the covenant circumcising him as the sign as God has commanded Brothers and sisters in Christ, obedience to God, trusting in the Lord is exactly what we ought to be doing because God is faithful to his promises. Trusting the way of the Lord is not always easy. It's not always easy at school. It's not always easy at work. It's not always easy at home. But God has given us in incredible promises to us when we will obey. And while we need to wait for those promises to be fully realized, yet we can be sure of the down payment that has been made. Abraham now, in light of the fact that God has given him his son, because he has seen the fulfillment of that promise, he is quick to obey now to name him Isaac as God commanded him and to circumcise him as God commanded him. And brother and sister in Christ, we have a more sure fulfillment than this. As Paul says in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not freely with him give us all things? The point of this is if, if God has already sealed himself to us by his own son and assured us of all the promises that he has given to us with the blood of his son, how much then can we be certain that in obedience to him we will find the blessed way? We must allow this truth that God is good to his word to, f- to fuel our obedience Also the truth that God is good to his word must fuel our joy. We see this in verses 5 to 7. Verse 5, now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. And all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Do you see Sarah's joy here? She is just overflowing with laughter, overflowing with joy. Back in chapter 17, when God had promised her that she would have a son, do you remember her response? She laughs privately, secretly, where she's out of sight, but she hears the promise and she laughs to herself. And when God confronts her on it, she, no, I did not laugh. And God looks at her and says, no, but you did laugh. 
And here, Isaac, the son of laughter, is a constant reminder, not of her failure, but of God's faithfulness, of her joy in God and in his promises. And Sarah, for Sarah, she, she looks at Isaac now as, as the fulfillment of God's promise and she allows it to fuel her joy in the Lord, her public joy. It is not private. All who laugh will laugh with me. They will rejoice with me in all that God has done for her. Her joy is public. It is infectious. And because... She names her son Isaac, or Abraham names her son Isaac, and she now rejoices, and she mentions that she will laugh and others will laugh with her. She informs us of how she is viewing her past failure. You know, too often we allow past sin, past guilt, past shame to weigh us down and to color how we view ourselves, how we view our lives. We think of how we wish we would have acted. We wish we would have made different choices. What would it be if I wouldn't have done that thing? What would my life be if I would have only done what I knew was right? And we can so easily allow guilt and shame to flood and color everything that we do. But I want you to see what she does is she doesn't allow her present joy to be stained by past sin. Rather, she views her past sin through the lens of her present joy. She is not allowing her sin to spoil or pollute her joy, to deface it. Rather, she is able to see how gracious God is to her and it is deepening her joy. Yes, I laughed then and it was sin, but oh, how I'm laughing now and it is all because of God's mercy. Part of the reason God gives delays to us in fulfilling his promises is so that we might experience a heightened sense of joy. Part of the reason he allows us to experience temptation and suffering now is so that our joy in eternity will increase. If God would have given Sarah a son 25 years earlier, certainly she would have been happy but her joy and happiness would be nothing compared to what it it is on this day. Brother and sister, part of the reason God causes us to wait and sometimes wait for decades is not only because he is seeking a greater glory for himself, but also because he is seeking greater joy for his people. God's faithfulness to his promise must fuel our joy and it must also fuel our worship. Here at the end of this passage, I want you to see Abraham's response. Verse 32 and 33 to 34. We're told that Abraham and Abimelech make the covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech then turns along with Phicol, his commander, to go back to the city of Gerar. 
back to the land where they are, the land of the Philistines. In verse 33, we're told, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, which was then becoming a visible reminder of the fulfillment of God's promise. And then we're told, And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. What we see is that because God is good to his word, we must allow this to fuel our worship. He calls on the name of the Lord, the God everlasting. Why the God everlasting? What does God being everlasting and eternal have to do with the events of this chapter? Why not God Almighty? Why not God Faithful? Why not God Provider? Why not any of those designations? Why the title, the Lord, the Everlasting God? I have to be honest, this, that was the question that frustrated me most this past week as I was meditating on this passage. What does God being everlasting have to do with what we have seen? What does it have to do to, to what is, how does all of those things lead up to this moment of praise to God and that is what Abraham sees. Let me point to you and us to several ways of why this designation of the Lord as eternal God as critical to this whole passage. I want you to see that this is first multiple ways over time God reveals himself to his people. So we, we know earlier God reveals himself as El Shaddai, God Almighty, or in another place, El Elyon, God Most High. Here the term is El Olam, God Everlasting. And one of the things that we see is that that title, El Olam, was the title for the preeminent deity of the Canaanites at that time. In 1929, about that, about that year, 1929, a, a series of digs, archaeological digs, began in the land, what we would call the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, at a certain location called Ugarit. It was one of the most prominent uh, cities in the entire area. And there they began to uncover, both in the palace and in the temple, a multitude of tablets and artifacts by which they were able to discover a whole host of information, a whole host of things about the Canaanites and about that, the people who lived in the land at this time. And that dig is actually, with a brief hiatus of about 10 years during World War II, that dig is still continuing to this day. They are still uncovering things, so to speak. So what that means is that we know more today than we knew even 100 years ago about what they believed and did. And one of the things that we see is that the greatest and the supreme God of the Canaanites was the God El Olam. That was the title that, they, that the Canaanites referred to as their supreme God. And what seems to be happening here is that Abraham is taking this title and he's not trying to confuse or, or mix the two religions at all. Rather, what he's doing is he's... He seems to be intentionally offensive here. 
Almost as if he's saying, oh, you think your God is the God everlasting. You think your God is the most high God. You think your God is the supreme being. Let me show you who the real God is. Let me show you who the real everlasting God is. It's not your God. It is, it is this God. It is Yahweh, the Lord. Abraham is confronting the world with the supremacy of God. And this is, brothers and sisters, whenever we worship the Lord like this, it is, it is treasonous, just as it is here. It is treasonous, it is offensive, it, is, it undermines every other claim of loyalty and value in the world. I mean, think about it. God demands that we love him more than we love anyone or anything in this world. Husbands and wives, you are called to love God more than you are to love one another. You are called to love God more than your own children. Children, you are called to love God more than your parents. You are called to love God more than your country, more than your career, more than your car or your TV or your comfort or security. We are to love God more than any of that. Claims of this world are all to take a back seat and the claim of the Lord. This is treasonous. This is no doubt offensive. And this helps us see that worship at its very heart is warfare. Worship at its very heart is warfare. The real worship war isn't about what we sing and how we sing it on a Sunday morning. The real worship is whether we are willing to to fight against the impulses that will drive us to do anything else other than worship God. We've had a long week. Let's just stay in and rest. I could be making some extra money right now. Why don't I just work a little longer if I can? Whatever, however inconvenient it might be, however difficult it may be for many of us to get to church, to gather with God's people and worship him, part of the war that we are called to internally is to worship God. Now remember who Moses is writing Genesis 2. To the Israelites as they are getting ready to enter into the land of Canaan. And very soon they are going to come across, if they haven't already, men and women and temples constructed and who are worshiping El Olam, the everlasting God. And Abraham, or rather Moses wants them and the Lord wants us to know today who the real everlasting God is. But more than this, second in worshiping God as everlasting, Abraham is reminding us that the perfections of God are eternal. That the perfections of God are eternal. When you and I think of eternal, we, we think of we think of life forever as if we've got this moment and then the next moment and then the next moment and the next moment in a series of unending, endless moments, unending time. 
That's how you and I tend to think of God being timeless, but that's not what it means for God to be timeless. For him to be timeless means that he sits outside of time. God doesn't see and view time the way you and I do. Kids, all right, think about this, young people, all right? So you think, when you want to remember something, you remember back to when it happened, all right? You hope for something in the future. God sees all of it at the same time. God experiences all of time simultaneously. He sees it all. He is outside of it. What that means is that unlike you and I, God doesn't change because you and I, we change every moment. We learn things every moment. We forget things every moment. We, are, are, we change physically. Every moment, our bodies are changing. Things are happening within us to alter us. You are not the same person today that you were yesterday. But God is. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His perfections don't change. You and I, we hope to get better. Some days, we get worse. God doesn't do that. When God made that promise to Abraham 25 years earlier, God, uh, Abraham began to see that the same God that made that promise to him then is the same God this many years later, 25 years later. It helped him to see that God had not changed with the passing of time. That his perfections had not failed. He had not decreased in any way. Our circumstances change, but we do not judge God by our circumstances. Rather, we ought to judge circumstances by God. To evaluate life through him. And last, Abraham learned that because God is eternal... Nothing can thwart his will. Nothing can thwart his will. Abraham saw this when he was asked by Sarah to let go of Ishmael. And God reminded him, this is what I I will do. And when Hagar had failed to believe and she was lying, hopeless, God reminded her, this is what I will do. And Abraham had seen, because God had just blessed him, he had just given him a son, Abraham was absolutely certain that the same God who had made the promise to him and had fulfilled his promise would fulfill that promise to him about Hagar. Because nothing and no one can thwart the promises or the purposes or the will of God. Abraham has finally learned that because God is eternal, the passage of time doesn't soften his will. God doesn't mellow out. God never fails to remember something. The events of this world do not shift God. God will shift the events of this world to fulfill his will. 
Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Brother and sister, we experience trials and temptations. Do we fail to believe that the same God who has made these promises to Abraham is the same one who promises us that no matter how great the temptation, he is also able to make, he, he, he will never give us a temptation greater than we can ourselves endure alone, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 13, but that he will with each temptation make a way for us to escape? Do we fail to believe that He who has given us his own son and that we, having been united to Christ, have died with him and have been raised together with Christ so that the power of Christ now resides within us. Do we fail to believe that God will be with us at all times and in all ways? That his promises for us are sure and certain, no matter what your newsfeed may say. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let us too join in confident and bold worship of him who is eternal. That the world may see by our worship that he is supreme. That the world may see whose eternal promises we are trusting and by whose will, in whose will, we are absolutely confident. We do not read the tea leaves of current events and worry what will be. We rest in him who is eternal. And we meditate and live out the promises in his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We confess that so often we ourselves doubt your promises. We fail to believe all that you have told us. Grant us mercy today that we may live in light of what you had said, not in light of what the world may declare to us, but in light of what you and your word have told us. Father, grant us faith that you are our eternal and everlasting God. And you cannot, you will not fail. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.